Welcome to Wisconsin in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm Cole McNeely. Coming up, we'll take a quick look at one of the top stories from TheCenterSquare.com and later, regional editor of The Center Square, Bruce Walker, and Wisconsin reporter Ben Yount will take a deeper dive into some of the top stories of the week. Coming up right after this on Wisconsin in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. Hi, this is Chris Krug, publisher of The Center Square. Our team produces the nationally read and recognized news stories at thecentersquare.com, the country's fastest-growing, nonprofit, nonpartisan, state-focused news and information site. We deliver essential information with a taxpayer sensibility through reporting that's easy to understand and easy to share with your friends and family. We know that you need information that allows you to understand what the governor and your local legislators are doing. Get the news that you need to know at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com. TheCenterSquare.com. The Badger Institute released a report Wednesday that states extra unemployment benefits from Washington, D.C. kept some Wisconsin workers at home. The report concludes states that ended their enhanced unemployment benefits before July saw their unemployment rates fall faster than states like Wisconsin, which kept the benefits flowing until September. To read more about this story and many others, visit TheCenterSquare.com. Now for a closer look, it's Bruce Walker and Ben Yount. Thank you, Cole, and welcome to this week's Wisconsin in Focus podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Walker, Midwest Regional Editor for the Center Square. We're recording this week's episode on Veterans Day, Thursday, November 11th, 2021. And I'm joined this week, as I am every week, by everybody's favorite, the Center Square Wisconsin correspondent. And well, he Bruce, might I be get, our only one. I got I, I got I got a couple of people who would who would dispute that that favorite. I I, I got a I got a, a mom, a wife, and an ex-wife who probably would take some issue with the idea that I'm everybody's favorite. But uh, but thank you for the kind introduction anyway. Well, it, the the fact remains that you are our only Wisconsin well, that's, correspondent. Yeah, that's that that that's the better. I am the only one. So no, that is it is wonderful. Although we 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 do we have a great team at the center square, and, and sometimes. Uh, other people step up. It, it is always it is always refreshing uh, when when it's not just my byline because I, I assume that uh, just like my wife and my mother, they're tired of hearing from me and me alone. Well, they should be getting ready for you and you alone as we are coming up on the holidays. And uh, let's talk a little bit about a, a story that you posted today on Thursday uh, related to the big news in Wisconsin is that once again, you will have a holiday tree in the Capitol. Yes, the holiday tree. And this is something that that almost every state does, that your state capital will put up a tree. And, and, and many times they're actually quite nice because, you know, in the Capitol Rotunda, and our building is beautiful. If you ever come to the state of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Capitol is an absolutely gorgeous piece of architecture. It is located on the Isthmus there in downtown Madison, you can see the lakes. It's up on a hill. It is a beautiful place to go. Uh, a, a fantastic building. And, and, you know, as most capitals are, they have the very tall rotunda. So you can put up a very large tree. And this was something that was done for decades without a lot of controversy. But, you know, as 
the 2000s moved on and as Scott Walker moved out of the governor's office, Tony Evers moved in. And that meant a, a, a seed change from a Republican administration to a Democratic administration. And it brought a lot more political correctness. And Governor Evers, in his first year back in 2019, declared that it would be a holiday tree much to the consternation of many Republican lawmakers. Last year, just by remembering, there wasn't a tree. The Capitol was was closed down to all but essential workers. And so they decided that if there's no one in the building, there's not going to be a Christmas tree. Uh, there were some lawmakers who put up their own. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. But yes, the, the governor yesterday uh, declaring that there will be a holiday tree this year. The theme is hometown for the holidays. His first tree was dedicated to science. That also was sort of a, a kick to the traditional Republican lawmakers. But this is this is one of these stories that almost every capital in almost every state has one. And in fact, many we spent years in Illinois covering when the Christmas tree would go up, when the menorah would go up, when the nativity scene would go up, the Satanists in Illinois petitioned to have their display. Th things in Illinois were so open that for years you had someone who would bring in an aluminum pool cleaning rod, you know, those big, long, blue aluminum poles that you oh, used to fish stuff. And it was a Festivus display. Festivus for the rest of us. You gather around an aluminum pole. Uh, in, in Wisconsin, it is mainly just the Christmas slash holiday tree. So I imagine that that the governor's opening salvo of declaring this a holiday tree will be followed in very short order by a number of Republicans who point back to the 2019 resolution that declared no, 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 no. It is not a holiday tree. It is a Christmas tree. Uh, I, I expect some outstate lawmakers to 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 do what they do this time of year and and put together either something tongue in cheek or put together something that will guarantee to get them headlines as we head into what is traditionally the slow season at state capitals. Great. While you were talking a little bit before about the uh, uh, the resolution and last year the legislators who put up their own trees tell me a little bit about that it was it was a couple of lawmakers and this was sort of a back and forth that you know as opposed to the the very very large christmas tree it was a normal sized regular living room christmas tree and paul tittle from manitowoc and shay sortwell who's from up the the two rivers area they're they're sort of next to each other on the uh, the, the 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 shores of Lake Michigan. If you're in Milwaukee and you're headed up to Green Bay or headed up to Door County, you can jump off the interstate and go through Manitowoc and Two Rivers. Very nice communities. Very, very good custard in the summer. I've, I've been there. And if you're a motorcycle guy, uh, definitely jump off there in Manitowoc and Two Rivers and take the, the quiet side up the peninsula. But, you know, that, that'll wait for the summer. Yeah, they were putting up their own Christmas trees. They went to Kohl's or Penny's or Walmart or Meyer or wherever you get regular six-foot Christmas trees, decorating them and then leaving them in the Capitol Rotunda. And then the state patrol, who the Capitol police, who are in charge of security of the Capitol, would take them down, and then the lawmakers would put them back up, and then the lawmakers would take them down. And it, it, this, this is what passed. Again, remember, last year we were coming out of the coronavirus, and this was not just a protest for a Capitol Christmas tree. It was a protest to reopen the Capitol. 
capital. Uh, I don't imagine that they are going to have to erect their own trees this year, but I, I do imagine that they will once again have something to say about this notion of a holiday tree. Okay, well, let's move right along. There's a, a, a bit of a court case going on in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, from my understanding. Uh, maybe you've heard a little bit about it. It uh, has to deal with uh, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. And uh, fill us in on that. Give us a little bit of background on the information and where the, the trial stands today, Thursday. Yeah, yeah. and and this is... This is we at the Center Square are, are very, very good at, at, at doing a lot of taxpayer-focused, uh, oftentimes state capital-focused, government-focused coverage. Uh, the Rittenhouse trial has been a basket of breaking news literally since it, it opened. And, and you can go back to August of 2020, and it has been uh, breaking news. And, and yeah, the, the, the expectation, fingers crossed, if you're listening to this, this podcast, is that it's going to wrap up early next week. Uh, although with this prosecution, it could wrap up any minute. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more. But Kyle Rittenhouse is, if if everyone remembers, he's the young man who shot and killed two people last August, August of 2020, and wounded a third during Kenosha's Nights of Violence. Uh, there were a couple of nights where protesters, this comes after the Jacob Blake shooting. He's the wanted man who fought with police and tried to get into a car and ended up being shot in the back by police officers. That touched off protests. And Rittenhouse, a young man from northern Illinois, came to Kenosha to, in, in his words, help. Uh, he brought his medic bag and he also brought a, a, an AR-15, a, a black rifle. And the evidence is shown in, in the video, and this is really a case where video makes the case, shows that he was attacked at several points and, and fired in self-defense. Uh, the prosecution dilly and dallied and, and, you know, this happened in, in August of 2020 and just went to trial here in November of 2021. And it, it has not been a, a good case for prosecutors. They, their own witnesses testified that, yes, Rittenhouse only fired when he was attacked. Yes, I pulled a gun. Yes, I watched a man hit him in the head with a skateboard. And so on Wednesday, yesterday, we're, we're taping this, uh, Rittenhouse took the stand, and he largely did did well, according to most courthouse observers. He's a young man, but he reiterated time after time after time, I only fired after I was attacked. Uh, the line that is getting a lot of headlines, I, I didn't want to have to kill anyone, but I, I did what I had to do to survive. Some of the fireworks were, 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 it was an emotional day for Rittenhouse. He broke down in tears at one point. But the judge in the case also reprimanded the prosecutor for implying, essentially, that because Rittenhouse invoked his right to remain silent, that he was hiding something. And then the prosecutor also tried to bring in evidence that the judge had specifically banned, saying, no, you can't bring that in. It was it was touch and go there for a moment. The defense had asked for a mistrial, and uh, everyone who was watching was sort of expecting that to happen still could be a mistrial, although at this point it, it doesn't look like it, but yeah, this, this is the criminal case that has, uh, has grabbed the focus of almost the entire state. If you read the paper from Eau Claire down to lacrosse and, and up to green Bay and everywhere in between, and certainly here 
in and around Southeast Wisconsin. This is the top story. Everyone is waiting to see what happens when the case goes to the jury. Uh, this this is going to be an interesting case if you sort of extrapolate it out and, and say, okay, that's the criminal case. What comes next? Governor Evers has been criticized for his handling of the Kenosha riots back in 2020. There are criticisms of the state's attorney general for how they have played a role in this case. There are criticisms of, of the, the local district attorney there in Kenosha County. The, the Republican candidate, the front runner so far, Rebecca Clayfish, is running on the idea that Kenosha shows everything that was wrong with the Evers administration. So while this is in every single way a, 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 the story uh, a breaking news story in the state of Wisconsin this week. This is also a story that is going to linger because of what happened in Kenosha and and the political and statewide response to it. So this is this is a story that we're going to write about when when we get a verdict, and I imagine we're going to end up writing a lot about as we go into election year 2022. Oh, great. Okay. Well, uh, do you foresee a uh outpouring of violence in, should uh, he be acquitted? That's the $64,000 question. My personal opinion, no. I think that you saw Kenosha's nights of violence were sort of the high watermark in the summer of 2020. Shortly after Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two people, wounded a third, and those facts are, are, have never been in dispute. Shortly after that, you saw the protests, the anger, the, the riots, the looting, the fights, however you want to describe it. You saw that subside across the country. I, I don't know if it was a political decision that, hey, this is starting to show up in the polls and looking bad for Joe Biden, who was running at the time. If it was a political decision that, hey, this is showing up in the polls and looking good for Donald Trump, who was, of course, running for president at the time. Or if this is one of those sobering moments, you know, it's all fun and games till somebody loses an eye. It's mm -hmm. all fun and games until three people are, are, are shot in the streets of a small Midwestern town. I, there are some protesters in Kenosha there. They've been you know, making their presence known at the trial, but it's a very small group. Many of them have connections to Jacob Blake's family. And this is sort of what they do. You know, there are people who are professional organizers, professional protesters. This is what they do. And so you expect to see them there. But there's, there, there is security. Kenosha County has the sheriffs out there. They're local police. There has been no move to call out the National Guard, at least as not as if we're taping this. I, I, there, there is a sense that there could be some, some angry people, certainly, but I don't think that anybody is expecting a return to what we saw when car lots were burned and the city of Kenosha was essentially a, a war zone for two, three, four days. Well, let's knock on wood that uh, things don't get hyper-violent yet again. So let, let's uh, move on to another story uh, that uh, you've been keeping up on and keeping me apprised of, which I very much appreciate. And that is the Wisconsin special investigation uh, by former Supreme Court Justice Mike Gableman. Yeah, when we last talked, our, our last episode, I, I teased this because I'd had a couple of conversations with a couple of people at the Capitol, and they, they do what they love to do. Hey, you didn't hear this from me, but uh, the Gableman report's coming out next week. The Gableman report's coming out next week. The Gableman report's coming out next week. And 
former Supreme Court Justice Mike Gableman testified. He, he came down to the Capitol and spoke to the Assembly's Committee on Elections. And that's the committee from State Rep. Janelle Branchin. I know we're throwing a lot of names at you, but this was the very first investigation. Her committee launched the very first investigation into last year's election. She was looking into this in December of last year. She was really asking questions election day plus one, but she started to formally move towards an investigation last December. And Gableman talked about where he is in his investigation. He said that the main focus, which is the Wisconsin Five, Milwaukee, Madison, Green Bay, Racine, Kenosha, those are the cities that got most of the Mark Zuckerbucks, the Center for Tech and Civic Life money, said that there's not really been a lot of cooperation with that investigation. Gableman also said that he is expanding his probe as, as opposed to ending it. He's adding more to it, and, and he's picking up the investigation from Racine County's sheriff into this order for nursing home workers to fill out ballots for elderly voters that usually in, in Wisconsin, and not to get too far into the weeds, but there's something called a special voting deputy that is authorized by law. Those are the only people who can go in and help elderly people in nursing homes to vote. Otherwise, you know, you're not supposed to fill somebody else's ballot out. You're not supposed to handle somebody else's ballot. You're not supposed to return somebody's ballot. And Gableman said he is, he is incorporating that essentially because he said the attorney general of the state of Wisconsin, Josh Call, who's a Democrat, isn't doing anything. Governor Evers continues to say that this is nothing more than, than a, a handful of workers maybe who may have done something wrong and local prosecutors should be the one to take it up. So Gableman said nothing has happened with this. There's serious questions that must be answered. And so he's going to add it to his investigation. Now, the big question about the Gableman investigation is when is this going to be wrapped up? Because the hope was to have it wrapped up by the end of last month, the end of October. Speaker Robin Voss, the head of the Wisconsin Assembly, who is essentially, you know, authorized Gableman's probe a couple of weeks ago, said, well, maybe now the end of the year. There's now some talk that it may be into 2022. And, and this is this is this is the difficult part for the Gableman investigation. If you produce a produce a report too soon, well, then it looks rushed. If you take too long, then there are going to be a lot of folks who say, well, this is this was last year's problem or, you know, well, that, that's great. That's great information. We should have had it earlier before we could act on it. So he's he's sort of in a trick box here. And the, the larger the investigation gets, the larger the final report's going to be, the larger the suggestions are going to be. Uh, but at, at this point, we still know what we know. We still have emails out of Green Bay. We still have questions about absentee voting and indefinitely confined voting. We have these questions about nursing homes. Uh, we, we don't have any answers. And because, again, and this is the most important thing, because while it is a Republican-controlled legislature, we have a Democratic governor, and the Republicans don't have a veto-proof majority. So whatever suggestions for the legislature to change the voting laws they're likely doomed because the governor has said since the beginning he will sign nothing that he believes makes it tougher for people to vote. So this really becomes an issue for 2024, not 2022. The, the, the election laws in the state of Wisconsin are almost certainly not going to change by this time next year. There, there are a lot of people who are hoping that they change by, by this time in 2024. So, you know, as, as we said, this, this is a story that we will certainly be writing about weekly 
for the for, if not daily for the next little bit over at the center square <laughs> well i look forward to reading your your post on this because uh uh you, you finished up one of uh your your more recent columns on this uh by saying you, you had some quotes from uh representative mark spritzer did it i pronounce that correctly yes mark spritzer yeah where he's a democratic lawmaker from beloit 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 okay well he said i think you quite frankly are one of the people that are undermining voting credibility speaking of gableman in our elections and doing damage to our democracy uh, which seems to be, by and large, uh, an accusation made on both sides of the aisle when yes. someone is doing something that uh, the other side doesn't like, that yeah. somehow you're undermining democracy. It, democracy seems to be under threat daily, no matter where you go. Every, everything from wanting to check voter ID to to I, open school board meetings uh, is, is now an, an assault on, on democracy. But but yeah, and, and this this really shows this, this really shows the split that there's there are very few Democratic lawmakers who are trying to argue the specifics of this case. There are very few Democratic lawmakers who, for instance, are standing up for the Center for Tech and Civic Life. There are very few people who are saying, oh, no, they did a wonderful service. We're so happy for them. There are very few, if any, Democrats who are saying what happened in nursing homes is not a big deal. Who, who, who say, oh, well, uh, you, you maybe get a little bit of this. Well, that's just a handful of cases, as if there's a certain threshold of voter fraud that's acceptable. The argument, and, and this has really been stepped up over the past several weeks against the Gableman investigation, is that it is partisan. It is driven by Republicans. If you were to read the story in the big papers, the, the, the journal Sentinel, the state journal, you would have thought that Mike Gableman didn't testify yesterday about his investigation or expanding the, the scope, that it was all about who's now working for this and the cost. And it, it really is an interesting political split that, that Democrats are only talking about the politics of this and hardly mentioning, if ever, any of the actual specific questions that have been raised about the election. And, and this is this is the thing is that no one's trying to overturn the vote. They just want to make sure that if something went wrong in 2020, that it doesn't repeated. happen again in 2022 or 2024. Got it. Got it. Well, this is something that we touched on last week, and you alluded to uh, previously in our uh, conversation today. The uh, Wisconsin Association of School Boards resigning from the national group responsible for sending a letter to President Biden in which it asked for help investigating threats from angry parents. And before you jump in on that, a couple of headlines came across, uh, unfortunately blocked by a firewall, but a memo confirms that the National School Board Group actively engaged with the White House while drafting domestic terrorist letter. And the NSBA president said the organization had also worked with the DOJ and DHS before sending the letter. And additionally, Kentucky and Alabama state school board groups, along with Wisconsin, has disassociated itself from the national organization after the DOG, DOJ memo. So why don't you start out by talking about the DOJ memo? Give us a, a brief overview on that like you did last week. Yeah, th and this was th this was the letter, the, the, the memo from the Department of Justice. Again, the Department of Justice, the FBI, all those federales, to, to use the, the, the internet term, that essentially said we're going to take 
threats. We're going to take anger. We're going to take opposition to local school boards seriously and, and to the point of where they may use parts of the Patriot Act to take a look. And and, and listen, I, I don't think anybody is sitting here saying that that, that parents or, or community members should get away with threatening to beat up or, or physically intimidate school board members. But I, I've, I've written news across the Midwest for years, and, and I've seen stories about angry parents. I haven't seen any stories about parents who are actually threatening physical violence while in the school board meeting. But this, this, this decision from the Department of Justice, this, this memo from Merrick Garland, the attorney general, angered an awful lot of, of, of parents because we have seen anger on two things since coronavirus closed schools. One, masks and the coronavirus mitigation efforts. Mainly what that means at this point is quarantining healthy kids so that they don't have to shut down schools. And there are a lot of parents who are saying, my kid's healthy. He, he either had the virus or, or he got the shot. Why is he sitting at home learning from home? The other thing that angered parents is learning from home. And they saw what their children were learning, or, or more to the point, what their children weren't learning. And we talked about this when we talked about the recall over in mequon Thienesville schools. The parents were shocked to see what their children were reading, shocked to see the, the sort of racial tinge to some of their social studies or other assignments. And then parents started to look and say, okay, well, how's my kid doing? How's my school doing? Where's the, what are the test scores? What are the, and parents for the first time woke up and realized that two thirds of kids here in the state of Wisconsin can't read or write at grade level. And that's the statewide average. You get into schools in, in, in the city of Milwaukee, you're talking single digit proficiency in math or reading. And for the first time, parents got a, got a look at what was really going on in their schools and they were upset. And so they went to the school board and just like the moms in, in Mequon said, school boards were very dismissive. They didn't really want to hear it. And that prompted the anger and the, that anger prompted the National Association of School Boards to call on the, the Department of Justice to, to stop the anger, to stop the protests, to stop parents showing up and, and, and demanding change. And once the cooperation between the Department of Justice and the National Association of School Boards became known, you saw an even larger backlash. And, and the Wisconsin Association of School Boards, which, again, back in, in early October, said that, that they, they don't support any sort of violence. They, they, they don't support any sort of, of, of intimidation. But they said, I mean, here's, here's, here's the quote from their letter. Uh, you know, where, where did that go? Oh, I, I lost it here in the, uh, I lost it here in the story, but it, it said that the community engagement is a bedrock principle of local schools, that parents absolutely should come down and be involved. Don't, don't threaten, don't intimidate, but come down and speak. And so this is, this is one of these stories. Again, I have said this for years that government is real in schools and cops and snowplows because that's where most people actually meet some sort of, of, of government agency or entity or get a government service. And, and th this anger from parents over, over, over what is going on in their schools is palpable. And yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that other states are, are joining Wisconsin's Association of School Boards. Now, again, it doesn't mean they can't, they can't join back up. The, the state association up here said, we're, we're going to keep an eye on what happens over at the National Association and our local schools can still work with them. But uh, I don't know, this was a line too far. And, and, and I think that there are a lot of places where this is going to be a line too far. 
Well, great. Well, we're getting uh, pretty short of time here, Ben. So why don't you tell me what you're working on right now that uh, we might possibly discuss in our next podcast? We did the, the story will be coming out either either today or tomorrow that the Badger Institute has a new report that confirms pretty much what business groups have been saying for the past year that overly generous federal unemployment benefits kept people from going back to work. Numbers aren't huge, but they are significant. And again, you know, you, if you wonder why when you go out to, to eat or when you're driving down Main Street and you see, you know, help wanted, help wanted, help wanted, Badger Institute's got a report that says, we know why there's there, there are all these people who are looking for, for employees. And, and we'll talk about that one next week. Terrific. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Ben Yount, the Center Square's Wisconsin correspondent. You can find all articles and podcasts by the Center Square at thecentersquare.com. That's thecentersquare.com. And for Wisconsin in Focus, I'm Midwest Regional Editor for the Center Square, Bruce Walker. Thanks for listening.